Welcome to the Building a Story Brand Podcast. My name is Donald Miller. Listen, if you want to clarify your message so that more customers understand the role that you play in their lives, that is, if you want to make a deep connection with your customers so they remember your brand, I've got a great tool for you. I have three free videos that you can watch at 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. 5minutemarketingmakeover.com. I'm going to share with you a really great strategy for connecting with customers. Your website is probably a lot of wasted energy, but there are some changes that you can make. Go to 5minutemarketingmakeover.com, either spell it out or use the number 5minutemarketingmakeover.com, and those three videos are yours for free. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm Donald Miller, and I'm here with my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. How are you? Fantastic. It's How a are beautiful you? day it's in gorgeous. Nashville, Tennessee, yeah. and we really should be recording this outside. I know. But Tim makes us... <laughs> <laughs> makes us be... Tim makes us be inside, because mm. there's airplanes and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we've got a great interview today. One of my closest friends, yeah. in fact, I was just in his wedding. He got married like yes. me. He got married when he was 40. Congratulations, Miles. Miles and Vanessa, congrats. <laughs> Miles runs a place called onsiteworkshops.com. That was just amazing for me and has been for a lot of other folks. It's kind of a therapeutic retreat center, if you will. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, you can go there and get nine months of therapy in seven days yeah. <laughs> yeah. and actually did it. But really, it's these high-impact driven folks who don't have a lot of time who yeah. show up at this place and kind of get centered again. Yeah. Miles has changed my life with this program. Everybody and who I know who's been to it just like Basically, yeah. I'm kind of tired of it. They will not <laughs> shut up about how amazing this place is and how much it's changed them. If you're on the staff at StoryBrand, you can go to on-site yeah. for free. We'll actually pay for it. Yeah, because it, it makes that much of a difference. Yeah, and it costs us, and we lose our employee for a week. But, I mean, I don't mean to be selfish about it. I feel like we get an enormous return on yeah. investment because people come back so much more healthy yeah. and balanced. Yeah. And, not that we have yeah. unhealthy people. But, yeah. but Miles is actually going to share with us uh, just some pitfalls that leaders get into. Yeah. He's been working with this group of leaders really just a friendship group of his for a long time, CEOs, executives, very high-impact folks. He's been working with them for 10 years, yeah. helping them get to know each other and talk about their stuff and become more productive, efficient, healthy people. Yeah. And he's going to go into the tips of that. But this is important. I mean, if you're a leader, if you're running a company, this may not only save you a lot of stress and exhaustion and hassle that comes when you're unhealthy, it's also going to save your team. Yeah. When the boss is off kilter, like, yeah. and I don't mean like crazy, but I mean like when stuff is not balanced in their own life, when they're not anchored and they're not emotionally there for their company, yeah. it impacts everybody. Dysfunction when, trickles down. Yeah. 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 When, when a mad boss walks in the room, everybody feels it. Yeah. <laughs> and the opposite is true if, too. Yeah. If you ever have a really great boss, I remember I got lucky when I was, when I was younger, when I did a cross country trip to Oregon, uh -huh. ran out of money in Portland and uh -huh. actually decided to stay there for a season and <laughs> uh -huh. try to get some money. Had no car. The closest place I could walk was a radio shack and I got a job. <laughs> at Back radio when there shack. were radio shacks. Back when there were radio shacks and I got a job and my boss's name was Roger and Roger changed my life forever because he taught me work could be fun. Yeah. I mean, he would do things like, you know, he'd bring a case of beer and say, anybody who wants to go in the back and do inventory can drink this beer. Like, yeah, we're all like, yeah, I want to do inventory. <laughs> oh, it was awesome. There were days when uh, we would just wash our cars in the parking lot and uh -huh. all that kind of stuff. We had this one game. Uh, I know this is crazy for me even confessing this, but you would, <laughs> you, you would get points if you could do different things while you're uh -huh. trying to sell something to a customer. Like, so they're over okay. here looking at a computer. And if you could literally jump up and touch the ceiling during the sales pitch without mentioning that that's what you were doing <laughs> you were, and one of them was we all we all wore boxer shorts but if you could get your pants to your ankles and back no <laughs> i swear we did this you would this. go to jail for that now you would now <laughs> you would now but this was like but back in the yeah, 50s like <laughs> when you were <laughs> when you were in your 20s well yeah roger taught me he also taught me a lot about actually getting work done and all yeah. that kind of stuff but it didn't have to have you ever had a really good boss jj i'm just curious um, you can think of anybody uh i mean i'm sure i have not off the top of my head like somebody really like, sure cares I've, about you and just, you know cares about your well-being um, so maybe somebody's really smart really yeah yeah i think i mean probably mm. probably i mean just i've had a lot of jobs but, <laughs> so i'm sure anybody in a plaid shirt 
maybe <laughs> that's that's sitting across the table from me. Yeah, I'm, Tim. Actually, Tim Tim's was not wearing plaid. I know, but I loved when Tim was my boss. I anyway, mean, I miss those days on. when Tim was my boss. Moving on. Somebody <laughs> give him a case of beer so you can do inventory. I love you as my boss. Don't even we can't even pretend. Well, I think this one is going to benefit a lot of us. There's a lot to process in this interview, and I don't want to take any more time talking about it. I mean, yeah. really, after we recorded this, I just thought it was one of the best podcast interviews we've yep. ever done. We're going to go deep. Yeah. And we're going to go straight into the heart on this one. You know, we are human beings. We are not cogs and wheels. Yep. And we have to understand that we are complex creatures, and the people who work for us are complex creatures, and those creatures have to be healthy. Yeah. Uh, dysfunction, yeah. like I said earlier, trickles down. So I'm so grateful for Miles Adcox. He's the CEO at Onsite Workshops. You can learn more about Onsite at onsiteworkshops.com. Here's my interview with Miles Adcox. Miles, thanks for taking time. Oh, man, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's interesting. You have, of course, on-site a therapeutic retreat center. You bring some of the best counselors and therapists in the world around, and it has attracted very high-profile folks, people who are very impactful, who carry the burden of running a company or some sort of public face or you know, all this kind of stuff. One of the reasons I wanted you to have on the podcast is because so many of our listeners feel like they have to be the one that has it all together or things are going to fall apart. And that is an enormous amount of pressure to live under. To some degree, I think they're right. They do need to have it together because people are looking to them as the rock in the organization. It's a unique burden and you understand it. One of the reasons I want to have you on is because you've worked with a group of executives for the last 10 years. You put together a group of people to go through some of your programs and just to become friends with and create a community who have unique burdens. And for the first year or two, it was all a facade, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> well, you nailed it. I mean, one guarantee with high profile, with high impact and with leadership is stress. Yeah, It 100% comes with that. It's part of the territory. But unfortunately, in leadership training, all traditional leadership training, nobody talks to you about how to deal with it. That's amazing because we'll all go to these leadership training about how to be more productive or efficient or how to delegate or all that kind of stuff. When really, a ton of leaders are drinking too much, popping pills, cheating on their spouse. Their private life, and I would even say inner life, is falling apart. And that is a serious problem if you've got shareholders depending on that person to get a job done. And you don't shy away from that inner part. You integrate the two. Well, I've lived it. Uh, I was somebody who swore I'd never become what I became, which I was working 18 hours a day, rolling through relationships, numbing out and medicating in a lot of unhealthy ways and calling myself a great leader. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm serious. <laughs> because at the end of the day, you could get the job done. I mean, the, the books look good. You know, right? yeah. you, you know, I had good cash flow. So what else do you want? You know, I, that was what I measured it by. And I was teaching this stuff early on in my career. And finally, it got to a point. It was like, how could I possibly mirror and model something that I'm not even living. It just wasn't connecting. Did you get to that point because you hit bottom or because you were just tired of having a dual personality? Or what? Explain to me the dark night of the soul when I'm not doing this anymore. It got lonely. And, mm. I, and one of, that's one of the things I talk, or a lot of leaders share with me is almost like the more responsibility you get, the bigger your company gets, the lonelier it gets. I mean, that's a common thing you hear all the Why time. Why is that? Lonely, it's lonely at the top. Yeah. I think we are biologically wired to connect. And yet, there's something in us that the more responsibility we have for the people around us, the more we feel like we need to manage our image mm. in order to be impactful. Mm. And the more we manage our image, actually, the less permission we give for the people around us to be who we want them to be, which is real. Real works in culture. It builds culture, it builds connection, and it builds people. And we build companies that, that function. Function with people. I and mean, it's all people. Yeah. Absolutely. And I see it all the time with people, the wheels just absolutely fall off. And, that, and for me, it was when lonely just wasn't working anymore. And when I looked around and I asked the question, does anybody else struggle with this? And nobody raised their hand. Hmm. And to me, it got lonelier. It scared me. I thought one of two things. I thought I'm either not cut out to be a leader because I'm impacted in this way uh, and I'm all alone in this, or nobody in leadership feels like they can be vulnerable and talk about it. Because And that's why they're not raising their hand. That's why they didn't raise and their hand. And you pushed all your chips on the fact that 
inside they were raising their hand and outside they weren't. Well, I threw it all out there. I, th- I threw all my chips out there. And I, basically, these were, were mentors. These were, yeah. were men and women that were doing amazing thing. People that have been doing it for 15, 20 years longer than me. And I thought, in 15 or 20 years, I can be standing up and receiving awards in the industry that I work in and have accomplished great things and be on my fourth marriage and mm-hmm. be estranged from my adult children and not have much of a life. And it seemed like those were the two choices, wow. either success or a uh, family. And you put together a group of men and women of leaders who were in a similar position to you, 10 years older, maybe down the road. And it was just an experiment for you. Well, one, you were motivated by the loneliness. You didn't want to be lonely anymore. And talk to me about the first time you met and what that was like and what everybody wanted to talk about. Was everybody still wearing a mask? Yeah, I mean, the first year it was golf and cigars. <laughs> That's as vulnerable as we got. That's called a lead generator. <laughs> it's called a CEO retreat. There, there you go. <laughs> and it was a bunch of CEOs and owners of small businesses. And we got together and the idea was, does anybody else not have a place to go with their struggles? Because you think about it. Those, even when you say the word struggles, you say golf and cigars, you're going to get people there. When you say the word struggles, what is it about the type A leader personality that says, I'm not going there. I'm not going to acknowledge them. I'm going to railroad that stuff. It's where we all need to go. But I think a lot of listeners would probably go, I'm, I don't want to go there. And, and honestly, I can't blame them because we live in a culture that it's not real safe to do that. Uh, unfortunately, it comes from religious organizations. It comes from education. It, every subculture around the culture that we built teaches us to manage our image. Mm. And, and the opposite of that would be letting people know who we really are. And can you do that and still be seen as an influencer? Can you still be seen as somebody who others will follow? And my experience is, is that you cannot hold up that gig for a long period of time until you finally get truthful and honest about who you are. And when you do, your followers will trust you more. This is what shocked me. And so we get all these, uh, these guys and ladies together. And initially, you know, it was people were slow to raise their hand. I was slow to raise my hand, but somebody finally throws it out there. And it felt like for a minute, it yeah, felt- I want to go to that moment. It's all a right. golf and cigar thing. Maybe it happened in the first retreat. Maybe it happened later. When was the first breakthrough? So we sit down at a lunch. And I say, I'd like to check in on something. Gets dead quiet. I said, I'm working too much. I'm not happy at home. And business is great. I don't think this is sustainable and I don't know what to do about it. Does you put any- it on the table. Is anybody else dealing with this stuff? I just put it out there. Yeah. Awkward silence for about two minutes. And I wanted to just crawl under the table or run out of the room. That's an eternity. Yeah, two it was minutes. a long time. Yeah. And- Finally, somebody else speaks up. And when they did, they went big because they said, is this contained? In other words, is this confidential? We looked around the room and I said, is everybody good with what's said here, staying here? And they all said, yes. And he said, "Um, I'm having an affair with my assistant. Boom. And you would think we would all be like, what did he just say? Why did he say it? He has just killed this whole thing. And it was just the opposite. It was a huge permission slip for everybody to get honest. And we did. We, we spent the next three hours talking about what we struggle with, what our secrets are, what baggage we bring into the workplace, how work is distracting us from being home and paying attention to our families. What it led to was we need a place, leaders need a place to get honest with each other. If we can get honest with each other, then we can breed truth in our organizations. How do you expect us to go around and say the unsaid and tell people to say the unsaid in our organizations when we are walled up and not telling the truth about who we are? It's counterintuitive. And not only that, there's some cultures that will let you go if you get honest about your mistakes. You, you see it as a much bigger problem than just an honesty problem. It's American culture and business. And you mentioned religion. I mean, I'm thinking about a guy I meet with tomorrow who, you know, essentially CEO of a religious organization that didn't do anything immoral, just drank a little too much and he's gone. And that's the culture that should be surrounded by grace, right? Mm. And it's counterintuitive. And even as you say this, I wonder, I'm pretty vulnerable and open with my staff, but how would I create processes where we're checking in with each other regularly? It's a bit hard to implement. I would think. 
It is. And the hardest part I've found is as busy as successful companies are, how do you make time for it? Right. Most people would think, how do you facilitate something that would feel like it belongs in a group therapy session in the workplace? I mean, we're just trying to keep that stuff out. doesn't have anything to do with producing widgets mm-hmm. and key performance indicators are not vulnerability sessions. But you're saying it's got to be there. Well, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves. What happened with this group of leaders? So year one, three hours out of four days was getting real and talking to each other about what we struggle with, who we're becoming, and what are we doing with it? What do we need to do to, to create a balance between who we are and what we do so that we have sustainability and so that our life can be an anchor that we can show up present at work? We didn't know the answer. We just knew we had a problem. Yeah. And we knew it was consistent. Everybody raised their hand. Everybody had different issues. But there was just nowhere to go with them. You couldn't go into our communities. You couldn't go into our workplaces. So what we decided to do, I said, let's get together again. Let's do this again. Let's spend three days on it. And that same group of leaders now has grown into about 300 leaders from across the country, all coming in 15, 20 people at a time for three days to do what we call getting emotionally fit. The same 15 people in each group come back. Come back every every year. year. Yeah. And there's 300 of them and they're groups of 15 and they know each other and they've known each other for a long time. Yeah. They do this out at onsite, out at your shop? Yeah, we do it out at onsite. That's it's, beautiful. It's called our leadership, emotional leadership track. Okay. And there's a lot of research right now pointing to EQ um, as a determining factor for sustainability and successful leadership, but there's not a lot of support on how do you raise your EQ? How do no. you get there? How do you become emotionally well and emotionally fit? We know how it benefits you, and we know what the lack of it will cost you, but we really don't know how to maintain, sustain, and create it. All right. You're, you've got an acronym that we're going to dive into that we can all learn from. But before we do that, I want to talk about what it costs a company. You know, you use this metaphor of an anchor. And I've discovered, you know, I always thought the leader guy was the guy driving the boat, steering the boat, that kind of thing, providing the vision. And I think there's some truth to that. But I've discovered as my company grows that what my company needed more than any of that was an actual anchor, something to keep that boat from floating off. And for a visionary leader like myself, it's easy for me to walk through the office once a month, you know, like the music man with some new <laughs> bunch of trombones behind me saying, we're going here and then silence for the next month. And the boat floats off from where I wanted it to go. And we've had to create strategies and staff those liabilities so that there's somebody tethering the company to the anchor and keeping us from floating off. And not just that, that's off a little bit, but just the, you know, I've realized that my eating habits, my drinking habits, my sleeping habits all directly affect the lives of other people. Mm-hmm. And even the, the richness of my marriage and the fact that I can go home and recharge and have somebody who helps restore me and I restore her. So the consequences of not dealing with stuff are very big. Mm-hmm. What is it that you guys in this emotional fitness track that you're taking these leaders through, you use this acronym of ANCHOR. I'd love to go through it as a basic helicopter view of what you're teaching these leaders. It's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, and A means authentic. Why does the leader need to be authentic? I think authenticity is maybe the only thing that builds trust, sustainable trust. And this isn't strategic authenticity, like writing down authentic things to say as sound bites and then saying them in a meeting. (laughs) We've all met that guy, and it builds less trust. What do you mean by authentic? Describe an authentic leader. What's a day with an authentic leader look like? Is what I say and what I do uh, believable? Am I living in truth? And when I'm not, do I have the ability to tell you? Do I have the space in my organization to say when I make a mistake and when I mess up? And do other people have that? And let me tell you, I'd love for people to own mistakes. Everybody wants accountability and everybody wants people to say, I messed up or I screwed up. But we don't know how to create containment to facilitate giving people permission to do it. As a matter of fact, we do the opposite because the opposite of authentic and the opposite of vulnerable is walling up. And we actually get frustrated with people who shy away from telling us that they screwed up. But we don't know that we've created the entire system that doesn't allow them to do it. That's exactly it. You know, we've created a sword system. And so everybody dies by the sword. And if we create a grace system, people are more likely to talk about their flaws and faults. And I remember walking into a Nationals baseball game with a buddy who worked in the White House. And that day, Joe Biden had said something really stupid, as he does every Thursday. (laughs) And uh, I looked at my buddy and said, man, how does he get away with that? And he said, Don, he's true to his brand. 
And what he meant by that was you don't get judged as a politician or as a leader for saying something stupid or doing something stupid. You get judged when you pretended you weren't somebody who did stuff like that and you got found out. Mm. And to me, that was such a fascinating kind of dichotomy to think about. It's really true. Jesse Fickinger can say whatever he wants. Donald Trump can say whatever he wants because they haven't pretended to be people who have it all together and who are perfect. And I love that you're bringing up the point that in our cultures, this judgmental, closed off surface level culture that we work within if we are the leader we're responsible for that we created that culture and we have to take responsibility for that and begin being more authentic is that right it's the hardest thing in the world in my experience to to tear down is Mm -hmm. once it's built once you wall up an organization and people are scared to speak up people are scared to say their truth and scared to own mistakes how do you get around that i've not seen and i tried because I did it. I actually did it in my own company. And we're a company that promotes emotional health. We offer therapeutic resources and personal growth. And we had we had a pretty unhealthy culture at one time. Mm. And I applied, I don't want to say some of the business authors, but I applied some business authors that I really respect. I applied, I, I went in and facilitated the perfect staff meeting, five dysfunctions of a team. I'll say a few. And I respect <laughs> the models. Yeah, and I'm sure. sure the shortcoming was on the facilitator. But in my case, nothing was landing. So content, modality, it didn't matter. And what I realized was I was basically asking people to do what I was not willing or able to do myself and hoping that it would connect. And it did. The meetings went great. People responded great. They loved the content. Nothing changed at the end of the day. Hmm. And at at some point, I think we as leaders have to put down the microscope and pick up the mirror. Stop looking at the people in our organizations as the problem and start looking at our part. Because being authentic is not knowing what you do well. It's knowing your blind spots. Hmm. And we all have them. And yet a lot of our leaders listening got to where they are by ignoring their blind spots, pretending they're not there, railroading through them, compartmentalizing their thinking where their weaknesses are something that we don't even consider and certainly don't let you know about. And this is all liability. Well, this I, is think, all liability. I think not a lot of them. I think all of them. <laughs> you really I, think so? I think all of us, we get to where we are by kind of pushing through and ignoring certain parts of our pathology that can drag us backwards. And I think that's okay. It's just not sustainable in the long run. So at some point, it's going to trip you up or you're going to crash either personally or professionally. But the good news is, is on the other side of every fall, there's a rise. Mm-hmm. And the beauty in the rise is your blind spots are going to come out whether you like it or not. Yeah. It's we're not naturally going to just go around and identify and high five over our shadow side. You know? well, and the other thing that's probably true, you know, we took this great cultural survey. It was really an extensive survey with my company and scored like 98% on kind of what you would think of as a great places to work metric, right? We were just in the top highest you could possibly be. But we scored a C minus in one category that was all about me. And it was... Uh, we basically don't do any kind of conflict resolution. Mm. We just don't do it. And I realized that's on me because I'm a good news only, happy news only. We're going to achieve this vision. Uh, I'll railroad my ideas sometimes. No, but it showed me the, you know, it was bringing a lot of great things to the company, but that one thing was about me. And so with a couple of my key guys, we've had probably the best conversations that we've had. Um, I think about Tim, my COO, and us just sitting down and saying, why can't you come to me with stuff? You know, and and Tim went into this is the story I'm telling myself about you. And then I went into this is the story I'm telling myself about you. And neither story was remotely true. (laughs) But because I had created an organization well, we're not going to deal with that stuff. We, it's going to cost us too much. We got to get some stuff going. It was costing us long run. My whole point is this. We think we're hiding that stuff, but everybody knows it. Yeah. So just because you're not talking about it doesn't mean it isn't actually authentically out there. It's authentically out there. Nobody's talking about it. And because you're hiding it doesn't mean it's hidden. Is that right? Well, yeah, I do. I think it is. I think to know what you know and to know what you don't know is is the mark of one who knows. Somebody said yeah. that. It wasn't me. It was uh, <laughs> Confucius, I think. 
It sounds like Confucius. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but, but it's true. It's I think it, it was also uh, Donald Rumsfeld, actually, <laughs> said that too. <laughs> but Listen, most of the time, we don't know what we don't. You know, we yeah. don't know what we don't know. We don't pay attention to it. And I think but people- But my staff knew my weaknesses more than I did. Yeah, they talk about They it. did. Mm-hmm. And because- I and wanted I them in my blind spot. Oh, she does for sure. <laughs> if I wanted them in my blind spot because I did not want to deal with them. Mm. And they said, great, they can just be in your blind spot, but they are not in our blind spot. Mm. And when the survey went around and they had to answer those questions, there was that blind spot. And I mm. thought, oh man, you know, why didn't they tell me? Because I didn't create a culture for them to tell me. We have a happy culture. 98%, you know, anybody would want to work here, but this one little flaw. I think one of the reasons that we... It's not just about discovering a blind spot. That and, I, and for a long time, I thought, let's just identify it, celebrate it, high five a blind spot. Now we know what it is. It doesn't stop there, but it does stop there for a lot of people. It used to stop there for me. But you can be a seeker for a long time. At some point, you got to be a finder. Hmm. In other words, at some point, you've got to do something about it. And So being authentic also means taking responsibility. Yeah, for the you. first step, I think, is is flipping it on its head. So in other words, when you identify or the people around you identify, this is something you're struggling with, you first say, that's not what's wrong with me, that's what's right with me. Because as soon as you told me, you said, this is what I scored at as a leader. The fact that you know it, you said it, you owned it, you talked about it, they know it, meaning your staff knows it, um, changes everything. And then what do you do about it? Yeah, we have to have those sessions where we're talking. Yeah. Because I could easily just go, okay, great. We talked once. Yeah. <laughs> we don't well, have to do that anymore. Right. <laughs> All right. Authentic. We circled around that. That's uncomfortable. A lot of people are turning off the podcast now. <laughs> we lost half the audience. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> Nurturing. A-N-C-H-O-R is where we're going. These are the characteristics of a leader. The leader is the anchor. They need to be authentic. They need to be nurturing. What do you mean by nurturing? That's not my job, is it? Leadership development but nurturing. Whether we like it or not, if we're going to create a culture where people care about each other, care about themselves, and care about the product that we're delivering or the service that we're delivering, then they are going to get some needs met at work. Unmet needs that they're not getting met at home. And that's just the bottom line. I I used to try to figure out how I could keep that very separate. Like, don't come to work to get your social needs met. Don't come to work to whatever you're not getting from your wife or your best friend. It's not healthy for you to get that to work. Well, guess what? We're human beings. We're social beings. It's going to happen. And so as leaders, I think we need to embrace that instead of try to boundary up and push it out the door. Mm. And the way you embrace it is, is that's okay. Can it get out of balance? Absolutely. Are people sometimes going to bring too much of their personal life into work? Absolutely. It's okay for us to nurture the parts of people that are missing in their lives, in the workplace, in my experience. What are some common ways that we can do this? I'm with you. I, I listen to somebody like Simon Sinek, who I have a great respect for, wrote the book, Start With Why. And he talks about how with the failure of the American family and the dysfunctions that people are living with, the workplace is partly taking up some of the heavy lifting there. And I hear that and I go, it shouldn't be. <laughs> that should be the family. And as a boss, I've got a different thing I'm bringing to your life that's really nice, but I've come all the way around to say, that's a nice thought, but it's completely unrealistic. And if I want a productive workplace and a healthy workplace and to keep my great places of, to work metric up, I've got to embrace this idea. What are some ways, some needs that almost everybody walking through our doors bringing that we do not have a responsibility as their leader to provide, and yet we are wise to do so? In my experience, self-worth, self-esteem are the main two needs people struggle with in the workplace. And we live in a culture of comparison because we got social media in our face every day. And we've got advertisers that are way smarter than any of us that are writing copy that tell us that we're not enough hmm. or what we should be or what we don't have. And it's almost impossible for people not to bring that into the workplace in some way. When you meet resistance with resistance, which old Tradition, and this may not be real popular, but traditional business would say, leave the personal side out of it. If you allow people to get too personal in the workplace, then it's going to cloud their uh, productivity. I have found it just the opposite. If you try to keep it out, now, we don't need, a, we don't need to be sitting around crying on each other's shoulders all day, <laughs> but I encourage tears in the workplace. Hmm. If somebody's having a bad day and they're dealing with grief and loss, or they're going through a difficult time, or you got a new mother that's highly emotional or a pregnant 
uh, leader, then I, I think they deserve and need permission to be able to be emotive at work. It's not really them that's the problem. It's that we're really uncomfortable with people having feelings around us. Yeah. It's funny. Tim reminds me, my CEO reminds me when somebody's one year anniversary with our company comes up and I'll sit down and write a little card. I mean, a little postcard with my name on it, just sit and write it. And the first time I did it, I thought, well, this is going straight to the trash, right? And I noticed that that guy had just set it on his desk, leaning toward him for the better part of a month hmm. and did it again. And I noticed that gal that had that on her desk leaning. And I, and I put some thought into it. It wasn't a short card. I used adjectives to describe who I thought they were and what they contributed and why we would not be this company without them. And um, it taught me a lot. And the reason I bring that up is I think a lot of us think we're good leaders, motivators, accountability systems we run for our companies keep us productive. I don't think probably most of the leaders in listening to this podcast realize how much of a sort of maternal or paternal role they're playing in some of these people's lives and how much they would actually enjoy it if they knew how powerfully they could impact positively somebody's life. I, I like this idea of stepping into a nurturing role a little bit. Well, you, you nailed it. You, whether you like it or not, you are going to be someone's mom or dad. At some point, you're going to be talking to them and delivering accountability or delivering a hard truth or even encouraging them. And you're going to be delivering information that they didn't get or that they should get. And they're going to see somebody totally different. Yeah. Do we have the bandwidth emotionally to sit back and allow that to happen instead of shutting it down? Because typically what we do is we say, if somebody is stressed, what do we say? Calm down. <laughs> Calm down is the number one thing that raises people's ambient stress level. It does just the opposite. It's kind of a cuss word in our in our house. Yeah. <laughs> we can't say calm down yeah. to each other. <laughs> so give us permission to be nurturing. We're authentic. We're nurturing. And C in the anchor acronym is courageous. What do you mean by courageous? I think leaders have to take risk. And I think the more we can calculate. Emotional, personal, social risk. Is that what we're, we're still in that category? Absolutely. Huh. Well, we know the other risks are quite obvious if you've yeah, if yeah. you've stepped into the leadership role or if you're an entrepreneur, but emotional risk, I think the more calculated, the more likely you are to do it. In other words, you've got to know yourself pretty well. Um, you've got to know what you're able to do and what you're able to say before you walk into a situation and have an emotional or have a conversation with emotional depth. Do you have the bandwidth to do it? And if you don't, have you practiced it before? I'd, we do that all the time in our leadership team before somebody says, I've got to go have a difficult conversation because I've got to correct a behavior. How do you feel about that? Are you ready to do it? Absolutely not. It's terrifying me. One mm -hmm. thing I could say, you know what? Do it anyway. You got to do it. I say, well, let's roll. Let's do it right now. Practice it with me. And we roll it out. They offload all the energy that they've got that they're going to bring in there. And then they walk in there and are objective and empathetic. And mm -hmm. then they're able to bring nurturing and authenticity into the plate. None of that happens without courage. This idea of being courageous. I know there are everybody listening. Most of the people listening probably have a person on staff, a situation that they're just not dealing with. And a lot of us don't have the tools really to deal with that tension. Is being courageous is part of it. Diving in and just going, this might get messy for a minute, but I've, we've got to openly talk about this. It may be in private with that person but we've got to talk about this. Is that right? I think in private and, and you have to do it with the staff at times. There is, if there's an undercurrent of the unsaid, if something is going around with, a, with an individual or a group that is not being talked about, courage is not waiting. And, and I, am a, I am a leader who has struggled to practice that as I'm a guy who also can be conflict avoidant. You know, that was the imprint. And I can give you an example after example how I have, have set back and tried to let something play out and it got worse. And one of the things I think we all strive for and want is a connected culture. A connected culture means the people in our organizations like each other. They like showing up and they get mm. close and they have value in the relationships. Well, the more value and the more connected relationships get, the harder it gets to tell people the truth. If you notice some of the tools and skills that we as leaders practice really well at work, it's hard for us to practice at home. Mm. For an example, I think we've done a great job in my organization at building a great culture. People are incredibly close to each other, and it's getting harder and harder for us to tell the truth to each other. 
I've got some of, something at stake now. The whole thing could fall yeah, apart. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I've got some of my, it just feels really close to home. I've got some of my closest friends working with me. And I've, you know, an example is one of my closest friends in the organization and I really had a conflict that needed to be talked about and I waited and it got worse. Because the stakes were the friendship. Stake was the friendship. Yeah. And friendship went into relationship. And so you can go straight down that hole to thinking I'm going to lose some kind of social standing here if I tell the truth. But it was costing the organization. And courage is walking into the discomfort and speaking the truth, even when it's hard. One way to screw up that meeting, that courageous meeting that you actually have as the next point and anchor is humility. Mm -hmm. And I know for a lot of leaders, if they're wired like I am, that sort of resistance builds up, that tense situation builds up. And I've had to learn as a leader not to explode on people, not to walk in and go, we're going to fix this right now and I don't really care who gets hurt. But, you know, there may be some collateral damage, but it'll heal in time if we put some bandages on it, but we're fixing this right now. I've had to learn that's the stupidest thing I could possibly do. And it feels like the next letter in the acronym ANCHOR is HUMBLE. And an ounce of humility can prevent some of that collateral damage. What do you mean by HUMBLE? Well, it goes along with the other ones that we've talked about. The only way to know your humility is to know your ego. Hmm. And to know you've got one, identify and own it. Because we all do. And it helps us, actually. Ego and confidence and leadership is a pretty positive thing. Without knowing when it can trip us up, um, we don't have the ability to stay in a place of humility when it comes to meeting people and struggle. Where does our ego trip us up? Mine trips me up when I'm dealing with a difficult situation or a difficult uh, personality who has behavior issues or performance issues. I want to do what traditional thought and what most leaders would do, which is cut them loose. Cut them loose to protect the culture. You mean get rid of them? Get rid of them. Get out. Yeah. yeah. If you've seen a consistent problem that's causing harm to the culture, it'd be much easier to cut it loose and replace it. Not always, but it can be easier to cut it loose and replace it than to deal with it and try to solve the problem. Humility, mm-hmm. I believe, is seeing the humanness in the people around us. Seeing people for more than their talent that they bring professionally, but also know that they're human beings and they're going to struggle. And do we have a place that can support struggle personally and professionally so that we can get the best of people? Is humility partly realizing that we're part of the problem and part of the solution, just like everybody else is part of the problem, part of the solution? Humility goes into the room and says, hey, I'm not perfect here, but we got to keep moving forward on this culture we're building. Is that part of humility? I think it's probably the essential part. Yeah, it feels like that's what you were, you were saying, where when I'm having to deal with a problem, I tend to create binary options in my brain where there's a villain and there's a hero and I tend to be the hero <laughs> in that situation which Every causes time. trouble so humility is we both we're both a little villain both a little hero here we got to figure this out yeah I, doesn't that cost the team authority I'm pushing back right doesn't that cost the team authority doesn't somebody in the room have to be the guy with the big enough ego to say no this is just going to be how it's done I'm not here to debate you I think at times uh, you can do that in humility Mm-hmm. You can make a call, shut down a conversation or move it forward, make it be decisive, make a decision and still be humble about it. I really do think that humble people know they have an ego and mm-hmm. have an ego problem at times. Yeah. And self-awareness is just part of it. Self-awareness, I think, is the key to humility. All right. Know this who is, you are. This is, you better write a book on this. <laughs> Anchor, authentic, nurturing, courageous, humble. Now we're to the O and that's open. What do you mean by open? One of the things we do in our leadership groups is, and some people would call, you know, it's kind of a version of doing a 360, but one of the things we do after somebody checks in or does an exercise is we look at them and say, are you open for feedback? Ooh. (laughs) I can't even imagine that in the business space. Like after a business meeting, some CEO (laughs) saying, okay, I'm open for feedback. That just, that feels like everybody in the room's got a shotgun. And try it. And you're a clay pigeon. (laughs) It is hard and it's a game changer. Is it really? You're, you're, tell, you're telling the people listening to this, they need to say, everybody, I'm open for feedback. Try it in a staff meeting. And what's going to be interesting is the first time you facilitate that, the first time you deliver and you say, I'd be open to feedback if anybody's got any comments or anything they want. Nothing. <laughs> Can you get crickets? Which, which speaks volumes to the kind of culture that we've got to deconstruct. Building openness, in, in my opinion, is do you have a culture – and are you a leader that knows how to listen? Hmm. So that silence is saying, 
thanks for the little thing you did there, but you're actually not a listener. Well, that's day two of our leadership track is listening is the 50% of communication that doesn't get enough attention. Mm. And there's an art and there's a science to it. And I think most leaders need to be taught and trained how to listen because it's hard for us to do. We're usually charismatic. You know, we're good at talking. We know what to say. We know how to fill the air. So being open is just being open to outside input, being open to shifting and changing yourself, Mm -hmm. being open to suggestions on where this company needs to go, what we need to do and all and that, that stuff. It's not something you arrive at. It's something you build. Okay. If I'm going to be open, if I'm going to ask my staff, both personally and professionally for feedback, I better be able to take a bullet, <laughs> which gets us to the final letter in the anchor acronym. And that is resilient. Mm. We have to be resilient if we're going to be leaders that uh, people love. What do you mean by resilient? Here's what I know about being open in, in receiving feedback or critique. The only way to escape critique is just to do nothing or say nothing. And if you're going to do something and say something, and you're going to practice active listening and encourage your people around you to speak into you, then you're going to get critique. Critique hits one big button in every human being, and that's shame. And we don't talk about shame in the workplace because we don't think we're supposed to. It sounds like some kind of new age therapeutic term. And guess what? It lives, eats, and breathes in every single human being on the planet. And you better believe it shows up in the workplace. The only thing shame can't live without is empathy. Empathy is the birthplace of resilience. What do you mean by that? We have to have enough resilience on board that when we take bullets or when we take feedback or when we make mistakes, we hear it as we made a bad decision. We're not a bad person. So we have to differentiate. It, it, it goes back to that ego thing. This some can't be an identity Well, issue. some people would say you can't be sensitive. And I actually don't agree with that. I mm. think you need to be sensitive. Oversensitive can be a problem. I just think you've got to be able to differentiate from what feels personal to what's not personal. And the only way to do that is to separate who you are from what you're actually doing. And that's one of the things we do in all of our programs is we have people take off their professional hat sometimes. Who are you as a human being versus who are you as a human doing? Mm -hmm. And what's the difference? Mm -hmm. And if all of my stock, all of my worth, all of my esteem is in what I do, then when somebody tells me I'm doing it wrong, it's going to hit a personal button. And when I hit a personal button, resistance is going to come up. I'm going to meet resistance with resistance and we're going to shut it down. Nobody's going to speak up again. Wow. When I discovered this 78% score on really my ability to hear conflicting news or whatever. It hurt. It hurt for a minute. Then I just told myself, look, if you are going to build an organization, what you just discovered is the next thing that God needs you to learn in order to do it. Mm. And when I viewed it that way, it was easier. I said, okay, well, that's a dignified path. Then you're telling me this is the next thing I got to learn to be better rather than this is your deficiency. Is that what you mean by resilience? That you f- have to find some way to look at this thing where you can stay in the game and be resilient and show up every day and take the criticism and grow along with everybody else? 100%. It's not what's wrong with you. It's what's right with you. And if you can begin to hear where you've made mistakes and realize, I can't believe I've created a container in space where people will tell me the truth. Hmm. I've just done the 5%, the 95% are charismatic, loud leaders who don't make space for the people around them to speak up. I've just entered into the 5% win, home run. The sort of leaders who do this are the sort of leaders people want to work for. They're dying to work for these people. Is that right? I think they're the ones that build incredible cultures that aren't built on charisma. And I think they're the ones that build companies to last. Miles, this has been an incredible interview. I want to go back through these points. If you want to be the kind of leader people love, if you want to create a nurturing culture, then we as the leader have to be authentic, nurturing, courageous, humble, open, and resilient. I have one more question for you. I know how to bring up in a routine way through processes, wildly important goals, key performance indicators, review lead measures, review lag measures, scoreboards, public scoreboards in my place of work. You ask me to make widgets and make them efficiently produce them and sell them. I can do that all day long. Are there routines that I can make sure that I'm operating 
this anchor system and keeping a healthy culture that I can somehow keep as a process in my meetings? What questions do I need to ask? And do there need to be culture meetings specific just to culture where we once a month ask ourselves a few questions and keep these things going? Because I can see everybody listening to this podcast and going, man, I want that so bad. But unless we say, hey, here's a simple routine to embed this in your culture, I don't think we're going to do it. You can measure it. And I think you should. And Southwest does. Uh, Southwest is, you mentioned a couple of things out of the 4DX. Airlines. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of things out of the 4DX process and, uh, and they've used it. And actually that is what they measure. That's a discipline. They measure their culture, how they treat each other and how they treat the people around them and how they communicate who is that they are to their customers and all that kind of stuff. Or how do they do that? What do you guys do at Onsite? It's part of our language. It's as much a part of our language as the service we deliver. We talk culture, we talk people. Every meeting has a part of that. Every meeting that we have, from all staff meetings to check-ins to stand-up meetings, it all includes how anchored are we in leadership. And we run through what's keeping us back. What are the obstacles that are keeping us from being able to do what we're asking people to do? Give me specific questions you would ask in a meeting like that. Are there specific questions to end a meeting or open a meeting or incorporate into some of our meetings that would help us keep this going? To me, this is the frustrating part because the part of our brain that takes in information is the one that really strives for process. Hmm. But that's not the part of our brain that we're necessarily accessing when we're building people, building worth, building culture, and building community. We're bypassing that part. And so it's not really about a model. It's, it's about intent. I think it if, has to be real. This is something that you got to live, which is hard. Yeah. I think there are steps you can put in place and there are things you can do and there are reminders. But if the intent and the importance is not seen, felt, and heard throughout the organization, then it won't work. Mm. You don't build culture unless culture is important to you. You don't build community unless community is important to you. You don't become an authentic, connected, humble leader unless those values are important and unless you're living them. They got to mm. be more than on a board. The yeah. board helps. It's a good reminder. But I think when the leader walks into the meeting and they hear that language and they hear them talking about it and you realize we are more important to this leader as human beings than the service that we deliver. Wow. We are more important to this leader as human beings than the service we deliver. And so we look for indicators of that in our meetings when somebody finally says, you guys, yesterday was a hard day. Can I talk for five minutes about it? We know we're on to something good. We've created something that's really helpful. And I don't know if we can close on a, any better note than that. Uh, Miles, this has been terrific. I have a feeling you're going to be on the show a lot. <laughs> oh, man, I hope to be back. I'm always fun. I always learn from you guys. Thank you for having me. Well, let me ask you this before we, we let go. You, you've got 300 leaders who are attending in groups of 15, these leadership retreats. And I don't want to take all the calls when people call us, ask us <laughs> if they can go to one. Do they just go to onsiteworkshops.com? Well, the program we talked about today is a closed program. It's invitation only. Well, that's we, not fun. We don't Didn't have you talk that. about being open? It was like the whole O and anchor. <laughs> <laughs> we're looking at how we scale that because here's what we know. We know we're on to something. Here's what I can tell you as a leader in the last 10 years that I've been following this model with other men alongside me and other women alongside me. It's absolutely changed who I am. It changed mm. the way I communicate with myself, the way I communicate with you, the way I build friendships, and the way I lead my company. And it all started with us getting real with each other. There's not a lot of space to do that. You don't find that in traditional leadership training. We need more space socially to get real with each other as leaders. Mm. And that's what we've created. And it, and it is working. And so what I do right now is we also have a lot of other workshops. Uh, one's called the Living Centered Program that a lot of people are familiar with. And a ton of people come through there just to grow as leaders. Yeah. I've been to Living Centered. My wife has been to Living Centered. It's an incredible program. I do want to say, even though this program is closed, you can create this on your own with a group of leaders, something like it, you know, just getting together for cigars and golf and, and opening up with some folks and uh, being courageous. And you can create that yourself. And I recommend that you do. I think they're, you know, with the people who listen to this podcast, these are high impact folks. And when I say high impact, I don't mean to to toot you guys horns i just mean high impact like if you get in a wreck you're taking a lot of people with you mm. high impact and the idea of having some 
authenticity and vulnerability and safety around you, I think is just super important. So if you can't get into the program, which apparently you can't because we're locked out, (laughs) you can create that. On-site workshops is what Miles owns. Their living-centered program is seven days of turn off your cell phone, don't say your last name, and don't tell anybody what you do. And quite honestly, the first three days are terrifying. (laughs) The next four or five are just beautiful. I came out of there a different person. You can find out more again at onsiteworkshops.com. Miles, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Don. Thanks for having me. This is the segment of our podcast called How'd They Do It? And JJ, today you talked to Blythe Hill. Yeah. Blythe, I love Blythe. She, I, yeah, she was fun. She came to a live she workshop. She came to our live workshop here in Nashville. And when she came, I realized we actually have a whole bunch of people in common. And when yeah. we met, we were able to talk about the different stories of different people. It was really cool to get her out here and be at the live workshop. I love her vision. Yeah. This thing is going to take off, yeah. especially it's really with the numbers cool. that she's done after yeah. StoryBrand. She works for an organization. Well, she runs an organization called Dressember. Yeah. And it's a way for women here in America and Europe, all over the world, really, to wear dresses in December and raise money in order to free women that are under oppression around the world. So it's like the mustache thing for November. What's that called? Movember. Movember. <laughs> Grow a mustache. Yeah. So she was like, wear a dress yeah. every day of December. Mm-hmm. And, and spread awareness about trafficking yeah. and slavery and abuse and oppression all over the world for women and raise money to impact that as well. That's just so cool. Yeah, it's very cool. A very simple way for people to get involved and end the darkness that's really around the world affecting women. And so she came to the live workshop went through refined their story because she was she kind of had a couple different audiences yeah, she was going that. after I remember that and all these different things she simplified made things very clear and december's coming up here so people can still get involved but even when we recorded this interview she had already doubled her fundraising over last year you're kidding no so, she and had, this is only wait she's only had the new marketing collateral up for a short period yeah, of time, right? Yeah, just for a real short time. So over 100% yeah, increase. Yeah, and five times more teams involved just because people were really clear on how do I get involved? How do I change the world? And if that isn't proof that, you know, what we're saying is not always what people are hearing, yeah. and then you clarify your message so yeah. people hear you and understand, because all she did was sharpen that message. Yeah, and she really focused in on her plan. She yeah. really said, this is step one, step two, step three for how to get involved. I'll let her talk about that. Yeah. But- I would love to have everybody know about this and be yeah. able to get involved with Blythe Hill at dressember.org. All right. Well, let's listen to this conversation. I think we're going to learn a lot. Hello. Hey, Blythe. Hey. Hey, it's JJ from StoryBrand. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you, JJ? Good. I love that we get a chance to talk on the podcast today because we have so many friends in common, it turns out, but we actually never met until you came out to the live workshop here in Nashville. Yeah, I was pretty surprised how many people we have in common. Yeah, I love what you do. I've heard about you for a long time. I've known about you just through our mutual friends, but I had a chance to get to talk to you a little bit about what you do when you came out here. And I would love for you to tell all of our listeners what it is that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I manage a nonprofit organization called the Dressember Foundation. Mm -hmm. Let me back up. What I found (laughs) was that a lot of women are passionate about ending human trafficking, but feel powerless. And I would put myself in that that group as well. So I created an easy, fun way for busy women to make a significant impact in ending human trafficking. Oh, love that. Um, Yeah. And in three years, uh, we've had thousands of women all around the world raise over $1.5 million to help end modern day slavery. That is so cool. Explain that a little bit. So they raise money by doing what? By wearing dresses during the month of December. Which in California is actually a little bit of a stretch because it's still like 100 degrees there in December. So, Oh, that's funny. That's cute, JJ. <laughs> right? Yeah, I live there. Don't even clear. pretend. We were burning our trees <laughs> yeah, but- after Christmas on the beach with bonfires. So I know it's still hot there, but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we have a mild, you know, a mild winter by comparison. And I joke with people that I never would have started a dress campaign in December if I lived anywhere but Southern California. Uh Um, But we have women all over the world. There's a group of women in Finland and there's women in Canada and Chicago, New York, who commit to wearing a dress every day of December. And I always 
tell people those are yeah. the true heroes yeah. of yeah. December. They're the ones that can have such a huge impact because people notice, like, why the heck are you wearing a dress? Yeah, in, in Finland December? in December. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So you decided to come to StoryBrand. And what was it that drew you to StoryBrand? Why did you want to come? You know, I was facing a question um, that kept coming up in board meetings, actually. We, we understood the idea that our brand was telling a story, but we were having some trouble figuring out who the hero of our story was, hmm. whether it was the, the woman in the brothel, our own brand as a movement, or if it was the woman who would take on the challenge of wearing a dress for 31 days and be an advocate for uh, women everywhere. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that issue, especially in nonprofits. They really struggle with, who are we actually going after here? What story are we telling? Yeah, yeah. And it kept, like I said, it kept coming up and it affected everything after that question. Everything kind of hinges on that question for the rest of your the story that you're telling in your messaging. So it was really important that we clarified that. Yeah. So then when you came to StoryBrand, how did that help with that situation? Oh, it was great. I mean, it was freeing to find out, okay, we, we have the choice <laughs> as a nonprofit. <laughs> we could choose the model of uh, the woman in the brothel being the hero. But what I felt really compelled towards was the model where you guys call it the donor model where the donor's the hero, but uh-huh. in our case, it's the fundraiser advocate, uh-huh. Uh-huh. really celebrating them as a hero. Uh, that's what I Yeah, and everything they do towards. to raise money and raise awareness. Yeah, and that all our messaging is, is towards women who would want to make an impact, who feel passionate about a terrible issue, but also feel powerless. That There's the tension that exists for them yeah. in being passionate but powerless. Yeah. So then when you figured that out, so you said all of your messaging really hinges on selecting a hero. So once you decided, and we know kind of from the story brand process that it's actually ends up being a combination of where you do tell the story of the women in the brothel and the women who are receiving, but it's kind of where you choose to do the point of your message, kind of the majority of your message. And you chose your donor, your person who raises money. When you did that, how did that then change? What did you change on your website? What did you change in your emails to reflect that? Yeah, well, we, I mean, I, we pretty much changed everything. Um, <laughs> we really simplified uh-huh. our messaging on our website. The, Which is huge. the portion of the workshop where we um, looked at websites was really clarifying because I just got rid of a, a ton of stuff on our page and it was really eye-opening how many call-to-action buttons um, I was encouraged to put on the page. You know, every time I scroll, there's a new call-to-action or the same call-to-action. Uh-huh. Understanding and agreeing that people scan a website, they don't really read it. And so having things really clear and creating almost like a mapped experience. And so we changed other aspects of social media, appealing to the pain points of being someone who's passionate but powerless to make an impact. Yeah, that's really cool. So then once you change those things on your website and in your social media, how did that change the engagement of people involved with December? Yeah, I saw a huge increase in engagement. Um, a lot more people tagging their friends. It, it just all felt clearer, like people mm-hmm. understood. Before I was getting a lot of like questions on social media and email, people asking like, well, how does this actually work? And it, it was just clear to me that it wasn't clear to them. Yeah. And I was doing a lot of explaining. Uh-huh. So that was tough because it's, you know, it occurred to me, people are interested, but not understanding. And uh, I was worried that I was losing people. So now what I'm seeing is a lot more enthusiasm and engagement. And in terms of hard numbers, we're seeing, you know, we're still early here in the campaign, but we opened registration and donations on October 1st. And we're seeing double the number of donations in dollars (laughs) and in the number of donations we're seeing about 25% more participants oh registered. And this is the crazy one to me. This yeah. is like, oh, I have no idea that year to date, the number of teams we have registered, uh-huh. we have 500% oh. of the number of teams on last year. So five times as many teams oh registered as compared to this point in the campaign last year. That is amazing. So that's really cool. 
Because that became more clear that you register a team, not just yourself and all of that. Oh, that's amazing. So you're saving time. You're getting more people involved and engaged, doubling money of donations and five times the teams involved. That is unreal, which I know then because of the work that you're doing directly impacts the women around the world who are trapped in slavery or who are oppressed around the world. And this has changed Mm -hmm. the amount of money you get, the number of people involved. That is unreal. I'm so excited for you. It's so great that we get to be involved with your work as well. And so for our listeners, if you're interested in being involved in Dressember, you can go to dressember.org. That's dressember.org and find out a little bit more about what's going on with Blythe and how they're impacting women around the world who are stuck in slavery and trafficking. So Blythe, thanks so much for being with us today and enjoy Southern California. As much as I was joking about it, I do miss it a little bit. So, (laughs) Well, yeah, thanks again for having me. No problem. Have a great day. Well, if you want to see the kind of results that Blythe saw at Dressember.org, go to 5MinuteMarketingMakeover.com, and I'll give you a bunch of tips on things that you can do to your website to see a much greater response. If you don't feel like you're being seen, heard, and understood in the market, we can help. The key is to clarify your message. It all starts at 5MinuteMarketingMakeover.com. JJ, this was a serious episode. Yeah, There's it was fantastic. About. I love the tips that Miles gave of just practical things yeah. that you can do to up your EQ. Be authentic, and- nurturing, courageous, humble, open, and resilient. Yeah. I mean, there are probably some married couples on a little road trip right now. I need to <laughs> yeah, pause and have a conversation. Oh, uh, yeah. And by the way, you are a fantastic boss. Ah, I was kidding earlier. I love working for StoryBrand, and I love working for and with you. That is very nurturing, courageous, and humble of you, and (laughs) I appreciate it. Oh, sorry. Thanks. I'm most glad (laughs) to be open. (laughs) You know, it's funny. We we, we have created a really good culture here, and I I think we all know that it's something worth protecting. And so the work that it takes to make a good culture and to be the kind of leader who creates a good culture is worth it. I mean, it's worth it to your bottom line, but it's also just worth it to your health and quality of life. Yeah. So, so grateful for Miles Adcox. JJ, always grateful mm-hmm. for you. Music from this episode is from the album Black Bear by Andrew Bell, which you can listen to on Spotify or download on iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>